Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 28. Welcome back. Just to review, the purpose of The Cunning of Geist podcast is to provide a perspective on philosophy, science, traditional religion, New Age thought, history, psychology, with a special focus on Hegelian philosophy. And in particular, I try to emphasize the role of mind and purpose in our world. Please follow me on um, the Cunning of Geist Facebook page, at Cunning of Geist. And um, on that page, I also uh, list all the references uh, that I cite during this episode in the last three or four episodes as well. So you can find um, details there at the Cunning of Geist Facebook page. Now, this current episode is on the wonderful world of quantum physics. And in particular, I'll be discussing how uh, scientists have various different ways of of interpreting the findings. And uh, oftentimes they're in pretty violent uh, disagreement in terms of what it all means. I'll also be discussing this in uh, with respect to Hegel and his notion of the understanding verstand, left brain thinking versus reason, vernunft, right brain thinking, which we've discussed often in various episodes. So now, just a note on the title of this episode, Materialism versus Mysticism. I'm framing uh, two basic interpretations of quantum physics through these terms, materialism and mysticism. Let me explain. Since the discovery of quantum physics back in the 1920s, almost 100 years now, uh, there have been essentially two camps among physicists as to how to interpret the strange results. On the one side, there are what I call the materialistic determinists who hold a deterministic view of nature. This is the belief that nature is independent of us, of minds of people. And importantly, um, these determinists believe that the world exists independently of our minds out there. It's independent of our perceptions, our knowledge, and our categories of thought. And just as importantly, uh, they believe that this material world can be understood by us. And uh, if we knew enough, um, we could explain the history of the universe and precisely predict its future, because it is deterministic, cause and effect. Now, of course, there's no freedom in this approach. And uh, it's just protons, neutrons, and electrons bouncing around according to the laws of nature. And um, these materialistic determinists believe that uh, this approach explains all that there is. It explains the, the sun, the planets, life on Earth, and even our minds and our thinking. So that's, that's one camp. It's fair to say that most scientists today are in this camp, but not all. Uh, the second camp I'm calling mystical because, first of all, I, I've seen this term used by scientists themselves to describe this group of scientists. So it's not something I just, just made up. And I believe it's a good term to highlight the difference between this camp and the materialistic determinists. So what is the mystical camp, as I call them, believe? Um, well, this group holds that what we observe in subatomic particles is not inherent in the particles, but it is created by our interactions with these particles. That our knowledge of these subatomic particles comes only when we measure them. To this group, the mystical group, science is not about what's real, the ontology of things, but about our knowledge of things and epistemology. And we can only take it so far. 
to this camp, we don't know the thing in, in itself. We only know our knowledge of the thing. And we also know that our knowledge of the thing helps create what the thing is, much like what, uh, what Kant taught. Uh, Hegel, of course, takes it a step further and that our knowledge of the thing is, in fact, the reality of the thing. We'll get back to that in a moment. Now, why is this view mystical? Well, it's mystical in a sense because the true wor world is hidden from the deterministic viewpoint. The deterministic viewpoint um, locks it out beforehand. It won't accept it. This is more like what we've discussed before, the understanding verstand, the, the um, left brain way of thinking. As the mystical view is more about the inner meaning, the right brain reasoning. Now, each camp has its own king. Uh, the first camp, the deterministic camp, we have as its king, Albert Einstein. And he, some of you may know, could never accept quantum physics as the final answer because it was not deterministic. He actually helped create, invent quantum physics, but he could not accept it. He famously said, God does not play dice, meaning he, he felt that this was uh, a partial explanation of what's really going on. In the second, the mystical camp, you have one of the other founders of quantum physics, Danish scientist Niels Bohr. Bohr and his disciples held that quantum physics, with its uncertainty and randomness, was in fact the true picture of reality. Einstein and Bohr famously argued about this for 40 years, right up until Einstein's death. They even held several public debates on this, which most observers felt Bohr won, and this helped cement the validity of his interpretation, that parts of the physical world of nature are not fully determined and predictable by other parts of the physical world. Now, again, just to be overly careful here when I use the term mystical, I don't mean that Bohr and his followers were mystics, although they might have been in their private lives, I don't know. But I'm not talking about it in that standpoint. I'm, these were hard-nosed scientists, but they were good and competent scientists, and they could not ignore these results. And they decided not to prejudge these results as Einstein had. They believed the data in front of them, and they weren't going to necessarily take it further into, into their own inherent beliefs. They did believe that the role of measurement and interaction in creating reality, uh, and that this has a deeper side than the deterministic model can account for. Now, quantum physics has led to a lot of people in the New Age movement in particular saying, well, this now proves that mind and matter are linked and there's quantum consciousness. Deepak Chopra and Amit Goswami come to mind as practitioners of this. That's all well and good. They have their place. But right now, I'm, I'm not speaking about that. I'm speaking about these scientists right now. I call this mystical only because to believe in the camp means that one does not believe in conventional determinism as the end-all and be-all. So, what is so unconventional in quantum physics? Well, let's review. There are many things. The first weird thing is called superposition. And what this means is that a subatomic particle, or even an atom, or even a molecule that they've now demonstrated, can be at two places at once. Yep, two places at once. That is because everything, including atoms and molecules, exhibit both a particle and a wave function at the same time. Now, the wave is the probability of finding it somewhere. It's spread out over a distance. 
Um, but the clincher is each time we specifically measure it, it's somewhere different. Now, a chair does not move about in the room every time you look into the room. That would be pretty spooky. But that's what an atom does. That's what an electron does. The term quantum leap originally came out of this kind of formulation. But let me point out something here that's important. And it often goes overlooked. No one has ever seen a subatomic particle, or even an atom for that matter. Yes, if you stretch the meaning of, of observation, you can get a representation through another representation of an atom. But atoms themselves are much smaller than the wavelength of visible light. You can't put them under a microscope and see them. This is important to comprehend. All of atomic theory is based on modeling. It's not based on looking at things underneath microscopes. And the, these models have proven to be correct in terms of their predictions. That's why I call science a highly successful predictive modeling enterprise and nothing more. But atomic science is based on models and algorithms, formulas, and not on observable things. So keep that in mind as we discuss all this. Now, here's where the deterministic approach breaks down. We cannot predict where the subatomic particle will be beforehand. They jump around like a phantom ghost, and jump is not even a correct term. They don't move from one place to another. It's just wherever they decide to turn up, almost by magic. And there's no way of predicting this in advance. So that's the superposition problem. Next is the measurement problem. This is the fact that particles exist as a probability wave until a measurement is taken. The measurement creates one particle from all the probabilities. And it is this one particle that then persists after the measurement is taken. And the question is, how does this occur? Well, this, the stock answer is the wave interacts with the external world and the wave collapses into a particle. And that's why they call it a collapse. But wasn't the wave in the external world beforehand? And just what is meant here by the external world? And what is meant by a measurement of some kind? And a further question it is, is the measurement enough? Or does our mind need to see the result of the measurement, even days or weeks later, to cause the collapse? The measurement problem is what gives rise to many of the fantastic theories, such as many world hypotheses, etc., multiverses, um, they're all outcomes that exist somewhere. We, we just recognize one of them. And physicists are in disagreement to this day about this. The third strange anomaly is called entanglement. And this is an interesting one. Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. It's a very scientific sounding word. Um, and what this means is that a wave particle can become entangled with another wave particle, or if you split it in half, it's entangled in a quantum sense. And if one of the entangled parts collapses into an existing particle, it will affect its other counterpart, its other entangled wave particle, even if it's millions of miles away. So even if it's faster than the speed of light, it will happen instantaneously. And this has been proven experimentally. This also flies in the face of materialistic determinism. It's one of the toughest things to, to try to explain if you believe in determinism like that. Now, there are many interpretations of just what is going on in quantum physics. There, you can read up, there are at least 15 different major theories and probably many more minor theories. They cover the waterfront. Some are more empirical. They're based on what the data suggests. Others are more ontological in terms of what does this really mean about the nature of reality. To use a very scientific phrase, it is one big mess. Now, 
just one other point here. I mentioned it briefly before, and that's the issue of measurement versus observation. It's the measurement that causes the collapse. Science science is pretty clear on that. But the the question, the nagging question is, how do we know this happened until we have observed the measurement? Now, I'm not saying here that the wave-particle duality continues until a person actually observes the result of the measurement. But I'm not ruling it out either as an impossibility. There are just too many strange things in quantum physics to rule anything out. But again, it's not... It, it, it's not right to put any presuppositions on how nature works, of how God made things. You have to let the evidence lead you to what uh, what the conclusion is. Along these lines, I want to focus a bit on the work of American physicist John Archibald Wheeler. Wheeler, as a young man, went to work with Niels Bohr in Denmark in 1933, so he was clearly in the Bohr non-determinism camp from the start. Wheeler accomplished a lot. He, with Bohr, published a paper together when they were working together explaining nuclear fission in terms of quantum physics. In 1938, Wheeler went to Princeton University, and then a few years later, he left there to work on the Manhattan Project, which was to build the atomic bomb. He felt it was his duty to do this, to end World War II as soon as possible. After the war, he returned to Princeton and taught along Einstein. He taught um, theory of relativity at Princeton. He came up with many interesting things. He established the idea for wormholes in space-time. He's also the one that coined the phrase black hole. So he's very well accomplished in quantum physics. Interestingly, in the final decades of his life, he became very interested in the, in the question of whether life and mind are irrelevant to the cosmos or central to the cosmos. It's something we've discussed here in The Cunning of Geist quite often. Uh, which is the belief that life and mind are central to the cosmos, as Hegel certainly contends. Now, Wheeler eventually came down on the side of mind being central. And uh, he explains this um, in his famous statement, which is often quoted, no phenomenon is a real phenomenon until it is an observed phenomenon. He even developed a famous experiment to show this. He called it the delayed choice Experiment. I'm not going to go into all the details here. You can look it up. But basically, that the experiment is that if the wave or particle would be released before a decision is made as to whether to measure it as a wave or a particle, uh, it was found that the results were the same. If the particle was released or the wave particle was released, you don't know which one it's going to appear as. And if you then decide to measure it as a particle, it will turn up as a particle. If you decide to measure it as a wave, it'll t- come up as a wave. So it's still um, indeterminate even after it's been released. So it's not just a question of uh, there was it, it decided to become one or the other when it was released. It actually became one or the other when it was measured. So that put him on the on the path of, of believing that measurement observation is, is central to to matter and. He took this further um, and came up with a very interesting theory called the participatory anthropic principle. And I've mentioned this in one of the previous episodes. And that's it, that before there were conscious people around, the the pre-life Earth and the pre-life universe existed in a probabilistic, undetermined state. Um, And it wasn't until people 
came about and started measuring things and started looking at the past through telescopes that it, it forced it into a real existence, much like what was done with the delayed choice experiment. It went backwards and, and created something after the fact, if you will. So it's a big topic. Uh, hopefully, maybe in the future, I'll do a full episode on it. But right now, it's important to say quantum physics does not prove that this participatory anthropic principle is is correct, at least not yet. But it, it, it he clearly showed that, you know, how we measure things, uh, the fact that we measure things has a clear impact on what the thing is. It's uh, the measurement is the message, if you will, if I can change that famous Marshall McLuhan statement, the medium is the message. Now, let's review. Uh, we've seen that the materialistic deterministic model of nature being separate and operating under its own laws irrespective to measurement by minds cannot be demonstrated given quantum physics. Uh, there may be further understanding that comes along. We have to keep an open mind. But as of now, the mysteries of quantum physics stand and the mystical approach stands. What does this show us? Well, it shows us a lot of things. First, the left brain notion of breaking things down into smaller and smaller parts eventually reaches a limit in quantum physics. We get to a point where we can no longer make deterministic predictions. That's where we are now. Second, uh, we've seen that when we try to separate us, our minds, from nature, it becomes problematic. Our measurements, whether observed or not, they're, they're still our measurements. These measurements have a demonstrated effect on reality, and that's, that's crucial. Third, we've seen that not everything is deterministic. The universe is not just being one mechanical machine. There are different possibilities in nature. There's a probability wave in effect upon which we can act. Uh, we have a freedom to choose, to, to choose the reality that, that's not given to us that we want to make. You know, we've talked about this a lot in other episodes, but we can't just impose a deterministic model onto nature. It's the fourth point. The evidence does not support it. Einstein spent the last 40 years of his life trying to do so to no avail. It seems to me that Einstein and others, they start with a basic supposition of how the universe is. Uh, they start with a deterministic outlook. Einstein claims to know how God made things. When he says God does not play dice, how does he know what God does? He's starting with an assumption. And as we know from studying Hegel, that's not how Hegel approaches anything. Hegel is very famous for his presuppositionalist approach to philosophy and, and also to history. And we've discussed this many times here. So th these are all big problems, in my view. If you start with a presupposition like that and you exclude anything that does not agree with it, then you're not, it's not going to get you anywhere. You're better off taking the facts at hand and speculating what that might mean given the facts at hand. And this is the, uh, the Hegelian approach. Now, speaking of Hegel, let's, let's cover him a little bit. As you all know, Einstein integrated space and time into one entity called space-time, and that was his big contribution to scientific theory. Interestingly, Hegel also lined space and time together. It's not called space-time, but he did see them as one entity. It's, it's very interesting. He covers time briefly in his Philosophy of Nature, which is the second section of the Encyclopedia of the Philosophical Sciences. You can read about this in paragraphs 200, 203, and Hegel's Philosophy of Nature at Marxist.org, their website edition of the Philosophy of Nature. 
Um, I'm not going to quote too much from that. You can read it yourself. It's just four short paragraphs. Um, noted Hegel scholar Stephen Hulgate, in his great book, An Introduction to Hegel, on page 128, he states, Time is not something independent of space, but logically what space itself proves itself to be. Space that has become explicitly what it was implicitly. Hulgate quotes this from page 130 of that book, and thus completed by one another, they are one. So I also found an interesting article um, on the internet uh, written by Eva Braun. It's called Understanding Hegel's Theory of Time, and that's at the Imaginative Conservative website. I'll be quoting a bit from her article. She notes that nature begins as the other of the idea, the concept world, and it begins as space. She says, quote, what is all important here is that space precedes time and thought. Space is the absolutely least mediated, which means least thought developed appearance in nature. And space antecedes both world and soul. It is neither a receptacle for matter, as in Plato's Timaeus, nor a form of human sensibility, as in Kant's critique of pure reason, but a dialectical beginning, thought gone outside of itself as the thought of outsideness. She goes on, now enters time. Time is once and for all a dialectical second. It is the negation of space and therefore forever space-related. Or more purely, more conceptually spoken, time is the first mediation of outsideness, end quote. However, very interestingly, Braun, a few paragraphs later, goes on and says, quote, I propose that the meaning for us of this formal event is space-developed glimmers of consciousness. She says, time is nothing but space beginning to come alive, becoming self-conscious as it goes forth on the road of recollecting itself out of the alienation from thought. She compares this to the beginning of subjectivity. Hegel demonstrates this in paragraph 201 from Nature. If these determinations are applied to space and time, then space is abstract objectivity, whereas time is abstract subjectivity. Thus, we obtain abstract subjectivity right from the get-go in Hegel's nature. This is something that uh, the materialist misses, and uh, it's why they can't accept quantum physics as it is. As Eva Braun paraphrases Hegel, time is the truth of space. It's the, it's the negation of space. It's the truth, the truth of space. And just as we covered in all of the last episodes, spirit is the truth of nature. So very interesting concept here. And obviously Hegel wasn't an astrophysicist and um, he was dealing with nature from a very much a, a logical standpoint in, in terms of logical development, not necessarily um, a scientific way to look at it. Um, but it, it, it is very interesting nonetheless. And it certainly... Uh, coincides with his his total project and how how he views things. So, let me summarize. One, quantum physics shows the limits of breaking down matter and making external projections. Two, we have also seen how we interact with nature, and and this has an effect on nature. Uh, we are the ones doing the measuring and the observing of those measurements. We are part of nature. Nature is part of us. Uh, three, we have shown that there are two takes on quantum physics. One is that if quantum physics is incomplete, we need to search for a deterministic underpinning. But we've seen that this is putting one's belief system ahead of the facts. There may be more that we need to ascertain, but we need to be open to where the data leads us and not just look for our own 
what we want to see in the data. We've seen that some explanations, at least, of quantum physics put mind front and center. Finally, then, lastly, we, we saw that Hegel has put the notion of space and time together in a, in a singular concept as the beginning of, uh, of nature and subjectivity is right there, baked in right from the abstract logical beginning of space-time. So that's been a review of quantum physics and I uh, hope you find it interesting. I'd love to come back to some of these points in a little bit more detail, but that's a general overview. And that is all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please tell your friends about The Cunning of Geist and, and rate and review this podcast where possible. This is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. See you next time.